But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. From Psalm 73, verses 2 to 3 and 17 to 18. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. From the Fellowship of the Ring by J.R.R. Tolkien. Welcome to Epigraphs. I'm Ted. And I'm Maria. And you have brought us some, some passages that are very weighty. Indeed. And uh, you, I think you wanted to start by introducing um, a theory of narrative to me. Is that right? Yeah. So I have a pet theory that I have, I have developed in inchoate form over the last few months. Haven't really had the opportunity to hash it out with somebody. So that's what I'm hoping to do here. And I was reading... I think it was Anthony Trollope a while back. As is he writes, <laughs> yes, he writes long books. And I started to think about long form narrative in particular. So I was thinking at that point in terms of quite long narratives, but the more I think about this, the more I think that my theory really applies to most things that are shorter, or sorry, that are longer than about a short story. Mm-hmm. And my theory is basically this, that any narrative that has that much length is inherently concerned with justice. It becomes in some way about justice. And when I say justice, I, you know, I mean it not in necessarily a super philosophical sense, but just in the sense uh, that we usually think of it like people getting what they deserve. Yeah. And what I think a narrative does if it's long enough to sort of have this arc short stories don't necessarily they can just sort of end then that arc implies some kind of closure for the characters there might be further things that are mm-hmm. going to happen to them but the the author has chosen to end it there the characters are in a new place and whether they have you know, gotten what they deserve or not gotten what they deserve, the closure that's implied in ending the story there just makes a statement about justice, whether the author means to or not. Hmm. So you're, you're, first of all, I love that. Thank and you. yeah. It sounds a lot like my theories about the book of Job. <laughs> yes, I know. When we've talked about this before, that is the first place you went to yeah. limited discussions. So. Yeah, so um, so the first thing I wanted, one thing you said is, it's not so much that you're saying that any long-form narrative, if you look at it closely enough, is going to display what you would consider to be justice. You're saying that any long-form narrative is necessarily saying something about justice. Right. Okay. That's because, I mean, the first the, the first thing that came to my mind when you are saying that is, well, the first one is, at least on a basic level, I really agree, and I'd like to get into more why I agree. But then second, I think about things like, um, which this is, I guess this is kind of cheating because it's a short story, but like, the parable <laughs> well, I, of the, the... I should say, I think that... I think that authors can do the same thing with short stories. I just don't think that it is built into the form the way that I think it's you can... built into long narrative. Okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Um, but like the prodigal son, mm-hmm. the story of the prodigal son, that that Im- immediately strikes me as something that is, let's say, very upsetting to a certain few of justice. <laughs> uh huh. So, and and I would add that what's interesting there, in light of what what my theory is is that even though that is a very short narrative, it takes place over a long time. Oh, and, oh, oh, interesting. So you, well, 
Okay, but but you would still say it applies to something like the Brothers Kermezov that takes place in like two 24-hour periods a couple months apart. Interesting nuance that I haven't really thought about. <laughs> so, so let's think through that a little bit. Does it apply to a narrative that takes a really long time to tell but doesn't doesn't involve that much passage of time. Yeah. I don't think that it's inherent there. Okay. In the in the same way. I'm not sure. I could okay. definitely be convinced otherwise. Well, although that would have somebody else defending my theory. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting is what's interesting is that like is it and I and I always but, just assume this had to do with the way that it was no, written. No, I, I still think that if you're going to spend that much time talking about it, even if a very short amount of time passes, the author is still saying this is the important time, and where the story, where the yes, characters are yeah. at the end of this is what yeah. matters. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. So, so that immediately makes me think of the whole, the whole like relevance, realization, problem of attention thing that Peterson, Peugeot, and Fervaki are always talking about, which is, you know, out of, out of the, you know, my day to day, how many different ways could I, how many things happened that I could have talked about? Well, you know, the whole day I was sitting in my house, there was these glasses on the shelf, and they just sat there. Mm-hmm. You know, like what happened with it? Nothing. They just sat there. It's like, that's not part of the story of your day. It's like, right. <laughs> and so, so when you're, when you're constructing a narrative, either out of things that happened to you, or it's a fictional narrative, you're do. I mean, with a fictional narrative, obviously it's in, 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 in a, in a sense of literally, what are you constrained to say? You have a, a, a very obvious and in, in basic infinity of, um, or functional infinity of things you could talk about. And so when you're telling a fictional story if you're writing the lord of the rings or the brothers karamazov or whatever it is or peter rabbit there's tens of millions of things that you could say and instead you say those things and so why Mm -hmm. did you pick those things and so you're you're one way to say what you're saying is the things are picked in such a way to would you say to do we make do we tell the stories to instruct ourselves about justice or to reveal justice I think that they reveal something about justice, what what the author wants to say about it. And here's a really important part of my theory that I completely left out. <laughs> <laughs> so you said something about fictional narratives. Yes. And I should qualify that my theory is about fictional narratives. It doesn't apply okay. to history for okay. the very important reason that the person who's writing history is not actually the author of history. Yes. And this statement about justice depends on the person being the author of their narrative. And so they are able to see the whole. They are the ones selecting what the whole is. And it's as soon as you get the whole involved with a W. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you make a statement about justice. Because what you're saying is... This is the scope. Yes. And so wherever the characters are at the end, you're saying this is like, this is the end result. People get what they deserve or they don't, or somewhere in the middle. So, I mean, what's what's lovely is, you know, taking the Lord of the Rings, Sam and Frodo have that excellent discussion on the, at the end of the Two Towers or in the beginning of their portion of the narrative of The Return of the King, where, where Sam has this realization that they are a continuation of the story, and a story of Baron and Luthien. And he mm-hmm. says, Mr. Frodo, don't any of the old stories ever end? Mm-hmm. And, so, and, and the answer is no. And, and so what you're saying is, is really deeply related to what I think is like the, the basic function of narrative in our lives, which is your point about being the author, right? It's like, okay, so I'm, I think there's a second reason that you can't expect that with history. The second one is that the person who's writing his, the history is in the same story. They're not outside of like right. the story hasn't ended. <laughs> exactly. That yeah, that's what I was trying to say actually. That they are they haven't gotten the whole yet. Now, you can look way back and you can look at a very large portion of history at this point and so you mm-hmm. can make a possibly depending on your the quality of your judgment, you might be able to make a better judgment of, about what happened or didn't happen to people and what the end results of their actions were but you're still in that same story 
Yeah. It's not self-contained. Yeah, I, I think about... Well, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the part in Paralandra where C.S. Lewis has the main character Ransom talking with these um, these humans on an unfallen world, right? The, 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 the king and the green lady. And there's this discussion about was Earth with a fall in the incarnation, was that the turning point of, of the universe? Mm-hmm. Or is Paralandra, which is this unfallen world after the incarnation that doesn't fall, is that, is that the turning point? And his answer is basically yes. Like they're all turning points. Mm-hmm. And so part of part of the act of narrative, and this is this is what I think again, I was what I was gonna say is regarding the function of narrative, is that there's there's the one story, which is the beginning to the end. Mm-hmm. And everything is somewhere in the middle of that, unless you're talking about the Bible, which is actually the beginning to the end. And so everything else is in the middle, and so you'd say, Okay, so how can we if everything comes from somewhere indefinitely and terminates and, and moves on to, to everything else indefinitely, how can we figure out like how, how we should act, right? Because so we want to act justly. That, let's call that the historical view. Everything's just part of one story. We don't really know how it ends because we haven't gotten to the end yet. But to some, I mean, that's still true in fiction too, because you know, you don't have a fiction in a, in a pure bubble. Okay, but here's my contention. Okay. In an important sense, you do. Okay. The very fact of it being a narrative that begins somewhere and ends somewhere implies that those are the, those are the vital parts. That in some important sense, when the narrative ends, the story has ended. There yeah, may be more yeah. to play out afterward, but, but fundamental changes after the end of the story aren't actually part of the story. Part of that story. They're not part of that That's story. right. So Lewis in the part of Paralandra that you're talking about is describing the historical view, but his book yeah. has a beginning and an end and the place at which the, the characters end up at the end of that book. Now I'll acknowledge it's complicated because it's a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's another book to come, but we're not going to come back to the green lady and the king. Yeah. They are in their resting place as far as that narrative is concerned. And so what I would say is where they end up makes a statement about what... Ransom does and per se, or what the Green Lady does. Well, where they end up makes a statement about justice, to bring it back to the original theory, in that in that case they've sort of, you know, to put it in very loose terms the green lady and the king have gotten what they deserve they're in the correct place yes and that is a particular view of of justice and how things fit together and play out that is implied by where lewis ends the story yeah oh my goodness well okay so one one quick note your your little comment about it being complicated because it's a trilogy i would say that's how i think when you step back into this world and you're saying, how does, how does narrative interact with the historical? I'd say that's one way. And the narrative is nested. Mm-hmm. And so Paralandra is nested in this trilogy, which you can see how these start to, you know, these things build up. And, and, and so part of historically what narratives do is that they say, yeah, I get that there's this sort of indefinite stream of things coming in and an indefinite stream of things coming out. But it's actually worthwhile to, to take this little section here uh-huh. and pull it out and say, you can look at this. It's like as a pseudo hole. Yeah. So what the historical view allows you to do is ask, well, what happened afterward? Did, did the planet stay unfallen? Did the king and the green lady really rule correctly? But the narrative doesn't include that. That's, that's really not right. part of right. the narrative. Right. And so... So yes, you can tell. The narrative ends with, and they lived happily ever after. So there's a great story. I don't do. You, I don't know if you remember the story from one of our ancestors early on um, in the like in the the pioneering era. It's the, the 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 matriarch who was out in the river washing the clothes. Do you remember this? And a and a buck starts to swim across the creek from the other the river from the other side. Uh-huh. And so she goes and gets the knife that she has lying on the bank and wades into the stream and kills the deer. Mm-hmm. with her bare hands with a knife and and the justice of that story is that like that her bravery provides for her family 
right? You see that her decisive, brave action, mm -hmm. killing this deer with a knife, leads to this abundance for her family. You don't then go on to say, is it important whether or not her children grow up to be bad people? Right. It's not important for the story because you... But to your point, we have a very strong, innate sense of what belongs in that story. Mm -hmm. So then if you added on something about how, and then that night she got in a petty argument with her husband over the dinner table, you're like, that's a completely different story. It either doesn't belong or you're saying something completely different. Yeah. Because you have a sense of where you start and end is, though this immediately also makes me think about Peugeot's whole point of the feminine and the frame and how important those are, right? Because where, especially when you're in the historical the way where you frame your narrative, where you start it, you know, I mean, literally, mm -hmm. where it starts and ends, is almost as important as the content, as what's happening inside of it. Mm -hmm. Because it, so really, let, really, yeah. Yeah, wow. let's say that Granny had killed the deer. Mm -hmm. There it was. She had all this abundant meat for her family. And then, now we're just in complete made-up land. Yeah. There was a flash flood. Yes. Before she'd gotten the deer all the way out of the creek, and the creek flooded, washed the deer away, she never saw it again. Yes, yeah. That's a very different view. It's a different story, and what changes is that she has now completely lost the result of her action. Yes. It gives you a very different statement about justice, and is she going to get what her action should bring her? On that sort of, you know, human level of, is it admirable... Um, is it courageous? Is she doing the right thing by her family? So that makes that right there makes me think of part of part of the value of of telling stories because all right because again the flash flood wouldn't have been the end of the story if that had happened and it would gone it would go on and on and on and on and like there may be all kinds of things right uh -huh. <laughs> because if you can see large enough you might see again this is right the flash flood washes the deer away and it ends up at someone's house where that you know it saves these starving children. Yes. <laughs> Granny's never going to know that. Not there's just and so, so the part of the problem is is this you you, you can immediately see once you've framed it you've now made yourself open to misinterpretation, which is a problem for our entire lives because our whole lives are framed. We are stuck in the historical. We're stuck in the historical and 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 we have a birth and a death. We're just thrown into the middle of the story. And so let's talk about Job now. If okay, because yes, what please. what Job does <laughs> is. It's a very common mistake that we make, which is we mistake the historical for the narrative, right? Yes. We judge what is going to happen by what has happened so far. Exactly. Because we treat it as if we have a whole. So tell us your, your yeah. pet theory. Yeah, Joe. yeah, which is which is that you've got, you, I mean, if you just, if you look at it, it's a couple of chapters at the beginning, you know, biblical chapters that are very short of, here's Job, here's the things that happened in the heavenlies. And then every, Job is stricken and everything is taken from him, even though he did nothing wrong. And then at the end, you have his restoration. And in the, in the, the middle of most of the book is his friends showing up and trying to convince Job that they know what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, and Job just won't buy it. He won't buy that, he, that anyone understands what's going on, right? He's saying, like, I want to see where this all came from. I'm going to stay here until God comes. And there's all sorts of wisdom and also beautiful poetry and all sorts of things within that but that very basic structure to me is the beginning of wisdom right so i i think on one level that says maybe that's the main current of the commandment to not judge right there's this sort of there's the, there's mm -hmm. an aspect of not judging others because for instance it will be judged to us but there's a, there's just a, like a very basic epistemological reason for not judging uh-huh because you're not at the end of the story yet. Like, yes. And so that's why there's a final judgment when everything is done. And, and Job says, it's not. Like, it's not yet. We're living in the middle of it. Which is why the book of Job has the ex a very, very clear parallel to the story of Scripture. Right? Uh -huh. You have the garden. You have the fall. You have everything that goes in the middle. And then you have the resurrection and paradise. Right? Everything is the same, but actually better. Mm -hmm. at the end of it and it's okay why does it have that exact same structure and nothing else happens in the middle of it nothing well god shows up well uh, yeah at which the also end. happens in scripture what, yeah <laughs> well at the end at the end uh, yeah but a little before the end because yes, it's well, interesting right, then that's, you have not, the word of that's god. not the final 
that's not actually the very end of the story if we're just talking about it in terms of, well, what happens. Yes. God shows up and he speaks. Yes. And then Job is restored in the earthly manner. Yes. Which, I mean, yeah, right. So the whole thing is working out as an analog, as an analogy mm -hmm. to what is going on cosmically. But it's that, it's that, that has to be the basis for our approach to, to the world around us. Now, what's interesting is you, there's the first tendency might be to say, okay, well then just throw out all the narrative because we can't understand what's going on. We, we're, we're in the middle of things and there's a, the, the problem of where do we set the frame? Mm -hmm. And I would say, first of all, no, because Job itself is a narrative. <laughs> and so that, that justifies narrative as a way to understand the world around us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it suggests that narrative is the, the most basic and fundamental approach to wisdom. It's not propositions, it's narrative. And there's some interest. John Vervecki makes this point about Plato. Apparently this like new wave of, of um, Plato and um, scholarship, which is we shouldn't be reading the Socratic dialogues as a list of information that Socrates and the thinkers around him believed. We should see it as a pattern of acting out wisdom. This, which I know, mm -hmm. I mean, we have like the phrase Socratic dialogue, but like we also tend to get into like, what was the specific thing Plato said about the forms? And the yeah. point is more, how is he coming to arrive at being wise? And so that narrative there, there's one way in which narrative is, provides us with a way to, with something to imitate because it says, okay, you're in the middle because we are in the middle of the story with Job. That's where we are. Mm -hmm. And so, but we still have to act, Right. Job's acting is I have to wait. We still have to act. So what do we do? And I would say we imitate narratives. Because narratives give us a much better grip on what would be the right thing to do, given everything. So in the case of Job, is the right thing to do to curse God and die? Well, if, if the middle of Job is the end of the story, maybe so. But it isn't. Mm -hmm. And so we can say, all right, contrary to <laughs> what I might feel, because I've read Job, I know I shouldn't curse God and die. And it's, it's the same thing happening in Psalm 73 that we used as one of our epigraphs. Yes. I, my foot had almost slipped. I looked at the wicked and saw how they prospered until I came to the temple of the Lord. And basically what the psalmist is saying, I think, is, and then I saw that that's not actually the end of the story for the wicked. Yes. They're on, they're in a slippery place. Yes. So, yeah. So what the psalmist saw as a lack of justice, that the wicked act wickedly and yet they prosper, is not actually the end of the story. And so if you extend the narrative out to the true end, then your view of justice changes and you act differently accordingly. Yes. So l let me throw, there's, a, there's another thing that's right next to what we've been talking about that I think is really true about narrative and I want to see if you think it's it's related to your theory so I like going back to the Lord of the Rings because of how well Tolkien did this which is so at the end of right right at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring and into the two towers you have the fracturing of the fellowship and Aragorn is trying to decide what to do mm -hmm. should he go after Bilbo and Sam, Frodo and Sam should he go after the Marion Pippin and he decides on the basis of the fact that he doesn't think he can help Frodo all that much but mostly because of his loyalty to, to Merry and Pippin. They've stuck with him, and now he feels that it is his obligation and love to try to rescue them. And so he goes and acts on this obligation, even though, say, from a, a consequentialist view of morality, that doesn't make the most sense, right? You'd think, well, Frodo's the only one that matters because he's got the ring, and so you should throw everything you've got as saving Frodo. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do that. He acts based on a debt of love that he has toward to the two hobbits who are captured by the orcs. And it, I mean, like, I'm not going <laughs> to, it took me like seven times through to realize this. It's first of all, it's, it's Merry and Pippin and then coming along and being allowed to come along because Gandalf and er and Elrond allow it because of the love that the hobbits have for each other. In spite of, again, the consequentialist view, they could have had like, these great elven lords to come along. Well, right? what? Yeah. Isn't it Gandalf who's, who says when they're making that decision something like, you know, we don't necessarily need more wise people yes. on this trip. Yeah. We need 
we need people who love each other. We need people who love each other. And you, you, you think, well, goodness, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't seem like the right way to do things. And so it's those two things, Merry and Pippin coming along and then Aragorn and Aragorn follow, deciding to follow them at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. And you follow what Tolkien has put together and you, it becomes clear that through very complicated means, that becomes the only reason that Frodo and Sam make it through. So you have this whole, this whole series of things where Saruman thinks that Rohan's got the ring and so he attacks Rohan before it's his time, and Aragorn shows up at Ro in Rohan just in time to help them defend at Helm's Deep, which, if Saruman had just waited, like, another three weeks, mm -hmm. he could have wiped them out no problem and attacked them, you know, probably attacked them at um, at Aras and, you know, wipe, wipe... But because he's afraid, because Sam and... Uh, because Merry and Pippin are there, and because the Rohirrim find the orcs who are hurrying back, they get destroyed, he doesn't know what's going on. Then Merry and Pippin get... <laughs> get the whole avalanche that is the Ents to come and destroy Isengard. Then because Isengard is destroyed and because Pippin picks up the Palantir, then Saruman thinks that Sauron thinks that Saruman has the ring. And so then because of that, he sends No, how does it no sorry, that's not right. He thinks Aragorn has the ring because Aragorn takes the Palantir. And so Sauron, before he's ready, attacks Minas Tirith. Mm -hmm. And because he attacks Minas Tirith, at that moment, that's the only reason that Sam and Frodo and Gollum make it through the Morgul Vale. Mm -hmm. Because he's so focused on attacking them, and because he's so focused on attacking at that moment, he's not, he hasn't waited for the right moment. They're able to repel the attack from Minas Tirith, so Minas Tirith survives. And then, because they lose at Minas Tirith, he's even more convinced that Aragorn has the ring, because how else could he have lost? So he empties... Everyone out of out of the plains of Gorgoroth to the Black Gate, which is what allows Frodo and Sam to make it across the plains of Gorgoroth. Not only is it empty, but right they they end up going on that forced march that gets them through that last bit that they would they wouldn't have been able to make it through. And so you can see this this beautiful long cascade of events that <laughs> that no, no no person no you know AI running on some. Even the wise cannot see all ends. Even the wise cannot see all ends, right? And then it comes all the, the the ultimate... Which comes in the second chapter, by the way, I'm pretty sure. Yes. It's very close to the beginning. Yeah. That. And so then you have this tie of this this thing of this, this say, non-rational, non very reasonable, but not rational act of mercy on the part of Bilbo in The Hobbit, sparing Gollum's life, mm -hmm. that ends up being the thing that allows for the destruction of Sauron. So why tell a story like that? Well, two things. Why tell a story like that? And why is it so heartbreakingly satisfying to read? And this, the second part is, I think, because we all know it's true. Because I think deep down, we most people understand that that is actually how reality is constituted. That is how it works. Why do we... Why write it and why read it? Because... Because our lives are a constant series of, are we going to kill Gollum? Mm -hmm. Are we going to go after Merry and Pippin? And if you haven't read the stories enough times to really believe that that's how things can work out, I don't know if we're going to be brave enough to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting because I've been, I've been thinking a lot about the, the cardinal virtues. And you've been talking about justice, which pers the vir personal virtue of justice is rendering to other people what's due to them, not other people getting what it's not. You're not called on to give people what they deserve. What they right. But that's sort of cosmic justice. That's cosmic justice. But what's interesting is is that I, when you when you look at stories like that and you really believe them and you understand what that's what they're doing, they they help you develop the virtue of fortitude. Mm-hmm. You almost like you almost I don't know how you could if you didn't isn't there there's that wonderful line in in when Mrs. Dimble and Jane Studdick are talking in that hideous strength and she says to Jane, It's not fair, you know, we were raised on all the fairy tales about, you know, happily ever after. We had the expectation that things were going to turn out well. Mm-hmm. She's like it's not <laughs> she she says like it's not fair to Jane that she should have to try to figure out how to have a marriage. When she wasn't raised with that narrative framework that says, "This is these are the these are the baskets you should put your eggs in," because yeah. it will turn out all right. Yeah. 
But Jane wasn't raised on an absence of stories. Because yes. <laughs> that's just not how humans work. Yes. And so she, I think, it, it's implied, was raised on on stories that are nevertheless making a different kind of statement about justice, you know, under yeah. my theory. Yes, and, yes. And that statement is that that's not really how it works out. So tell me about that. Tell me about... Uh, we've we've been talking about, say, a, a theory of narrative where ju- it's it is it's very much the Genesis to Revelation kind of justice. It's mm-hmm. the it's the um, let's say, one, I mean, one of my favorite examples in the Old Testament is Ruth and the Naomi and Ruth, right? Because then they become it's the great grandparents. Do Ruth and Boaz become the grandparents? The great grandparents of King David. Any rate. Uh, great grandparents, I think. I think it's Boaz, Salmon, Jesse, Jesse, David. Thank you. And so you see, you see this whole problem with the judges and Saul being elevated. And at the same time over here, you have this, you know, Ruth's, Ruth's act of loyal love to her mother-in-law, right? That becomes the, the shoot that the flower of God's redemption through the king Mm -hmm. comes about. So that's one view. And we've been talking about that view. What do you think? But not all stories say that. Not all stories say that. Um, I don't usually like reading the stories that don't <laughs> say that because they're generally not very, uh, well, I don't think they're very true. <laughs> and they're also generally pretty depressing. Um, okay, but let me see if I can think of an example or if you think of one too. Um, I mean, what what those stories tend to do they are not... Okay, here's what's strange. They're often not fundamentally different stories in terms of the events that happen. Yes. They just end in a different spot. Generally, they yes. end too soon. Okay. So... so you can take almost any good story yeah. and chop it off. Yeah. Often, you know, just a little ways before the end... And turn it into a story with a completely different statement about justice. And that's what Sam's as, asks Frodo when they're talking about the stories. Mm-hmm. And and it, and the conclusion is basically, the stories we tell are the ones about the people who just keep going. Yeah. We don't tell the stories about the people who give up and go home. We only tell the stories about the people who keep on, who keep on going. And yeah. I'm, I'm, right, I'm right at the end of the story of Endurance... Ernest Shackleton's adventure to the Antarctic where, you know, that's an interesting one because Shackleton, right, he's trying to do right by his men. At the beginning, he makes a completely reasonable decision from, with the information that he has to say, push on in this particular weather on the east side of the Ross Sea because he thinks he's going to be able to make it in and do this Antarctic expedition. He ends up, they end up getting locked in the ice for like I think they're on the ice for like 560-something days. Is it that long? It is. It's either 467 or 567. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, probably 460-something. Yeah. So they, I mean, from when the ship gets locked in until they make it to land. And and you, you could stop that in the middle and say, well, you know, how did Shackleton's leadership turn out for him? But Here they are in an Arctic wilderness. Stuck. Yeah stuck in an arctic wilderness like that really you know that that really works you know slowly slowly starving on an ice flow that's melting under them it's like that that really worked out mm-hmm. but in the end it does and so where are you for i was i was talking with someone two weeks ago and i i i'd never formulated this way they're asking me about you know some th- things that had happened in my life and i i <laughs> i put it this way and i'd be curious to know what you think of this i said that the events in our lives receive their meaning from the future. I buy that. Good. I really like it. I think it's real. I think it's a really interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's, sorry. Go ahead. So then I was going to say to your point, there's, I read two books back to back early last year, this year, a canticle for Leibowitz and then the name of Rose, the name of the Rose. And they're both, on the surface, kind of similar, written in a, within 20 years of each other about monks in very strange circumstances. One of them is a historical fiction about um, a Benedictine abbey in the 1200s where all these monks are getting brutally murdered. And it's written by a postmodernist. And then you have A Canticle for Leibowitz, which is a far future sci-fi, post-nuclear apocalypse sci-fi about a 
monastic order set up by a former electrical engineer, St. Leibowitz, and that takes place over 1,200 years. And they're so they're quirky and they're about monks and they're very like in the nitty gritty of like weird ecclesiastical drama. That's mm-hmm. like what's interesting though is that the name of the rose absolutely destroyed itself in the last 15 pages of the book hmm. on a narrative level. And, and I, it, it was done on such a, it was in, in such a heavy handed way to demonstrate his postmodern. There's no actual narrative that like, I actually didn't even, you don't even buy it, <laughs> which is funny. It's like <laughs> self-defeating. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, well, then why did you spend 500 pages telling the story? If you didn't think there was a story, I, I, I simply don't buy it. You're at least, tacitly acknowledging that the best way to communicate your idea that there's no narrative to other people is through narrative. A Canticle for Leibowitz, on the other hand, feels like this, it's three different periods, each one 600 years apart, and it feels like this tangled mess of craziness that's just some sort of like 1970s weird retro sci-fi story. Mm -hmm. And the last five pages of it tie the whole thing together so beautifully, so beautiful, and you're like, because you don't know what the story is going to be until the end. Mm-hmm. And so I, I totally agree with you that when you, until you get to the very end, you don't know what it's going to be. I, I, okay. I've got a good example. Excellent. I recently went back to Hemingway, who I hadn't read since I think high school. Okay. Um, I haven't read any Hemingway except okay. maybe some short stories. Read so. The Sun Also Rises. Okay. And... It's set among sort of expat culture, I think, in the 20s or 30s in France and Spain. Post-World War One, then. Yeah. Okay. And the feeling that it gives you is, or gave me, is that these people are so tired. Mm. It makes me feel tired to read it. Mm. And it, you know, it's implied in, in the title almost, you know, the sun also rises. It's just the same thing over and over. And so it also happens in the narrative. I mean, there's, there's some progression there. There's particularly like a progression for one particular semi-major character, but the narrator and the woman that he loves, like nothing changes for them over the course of the story. They basically end in the same place that they started. Interesting. And that in itself is making, I think, a, a statement about, you know, how things really go. So, uh, that, I'm, ah, that, that immediately brings up like four or five things that I want to talk about. <laughs> but I'll, I'll start with this one. So I just, I've not read St. Augustine's Confessions, but I just listened through a, a, a series on them which was fascinating and I did not I think you and I talked about this a little bit just in person about St. Augustine's fascination with time mm-hmm. and how he connects all these different things with past, present, and future so the triplex sin of pride, lust, and cur- curiosity is looking backwards you look backwards with pride in the present moment you're indulging in lust and then you're looking forward towards your next sin with curiositas and he, but he also, he also connects that, the way that we exist in time with the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And so we look backwards with faith about the, about revelation, right? So we have faith about revelation that's been given to us. We operate in the present with charity and we look forward with hope. Mm-hmm. And so that corresponds to memoria in the past um, attentio, attention in the present and expectatio looking towards the future. Mm-hmm. So that in that sense, the theological virtues are those which perfect our connection with the past, present and future. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing that that made me think of was that in some sense, bad storytelling is a failure of the virtue of hope. Mm-hmm. You cut off the future. Okay. Now I do want to, I want to add something now because I'm just I'm just thinking through this so I said that where you end the story really has a lot to do with what you think about justice Mm -hmm. and how that's going to play out but I think there are three basic 
points at which you can end your story. Okay. You can end it, and I'm going to say it's basically the same to end it either before anything has changed. Okay. Or when things are really bad. Okay. That is functionally, they both end up in, in despair. Yes. Saying, like, you know, either things are not going to get better or they're just going to keep getting worse. Um, you can end it when everybody has basically gotten what they deserve, we'll say. Okay. So things have sort of played out. Job is restored. Yes. Or everyone's dead in certain Shakespeare plays. Yes. <laughs> but there's another stage after that. Okay. Which is where the prodigal son ends. Because mm. the midpoint of the prodigal son yeah. is the point of what we would call justice. Yeah. He's gone out and squandered everything. Yeah. And what's the result? He's living with the pigs. Yes. <laughs> but that's not the end of the story. Can I just, can I interject and tell you a story from my life? What, when, was, you, when you were living with the pigs? Close. <laughs> no, this is when we were raising pigs and I was going That's to, what I meant. Yes. And I was, and I was, I was going to the sweet potato fac packing factory to get the, the discards to feed my pigs. And I was talking with a forklift operator back there and he was telling me about all of his life problems and, and they were very serious and sad. And he was talking about how he felt like he couldn't, he couldn't come back to God. And so I started telling him the parable of the prodigal son. And I was like, and it got so bad. He was out there feeding the pigs. And I paused and just started laughing so hard because it wasn't by disobedience that I had gotten to that point. But that, that's a really interesting point. So, and you'll, and I, I think that you even, I think that you can even pick a lot of stories where you see all three of them, actually. Like, depending on who it is. Well, it, the, the prodigal son has all of them, right? Yeah. Because yeah. first he takes his inheritance and he yeah. goes off and he spends it in wild living. So yeah. you end it there. He's having a great time, but he's wicked. It sounds like a really good idea to disown your father and take your inheritance. You know, someone could look at him and their foot could almost slip. Yes. And yeah. then he descends. Yes, yeah. And he reaps the consequences of what he sowed. But then there's restoration. And so this is probably a question for, I don't know, another episode maybe. <laughs> Does justice always precede mercy? You know, I, yeah. We won't go there oh, until man. we've thought about it. We'll oh, think about man. it some more and come back to that. Oh man, so there, that, that's just connecting with another really fun th thing that I remember when in my freshman year of college when I was out training for a road race and I'd go out and I'd do my long runs and you know I felt pretty good about myself because I'd never run that far before. Then on the on the bike trail, it's a long bike trail, so it's like forty miles long. So I'd go out and run over many miles and I'd be coming back, and I'd have some you know, fresh looking person just blast past me on the trail and I think. Pfft. You you're only running that fast because you know, you're you know you're probably out for your two mile run. Like you if you if you only knew how long I had been running for, and and I thought wow that's very wise Ted to think about that. And then of course, I immediately, it immediately occurred to me for all I know that guy's been out for twice as long as me and is actually a truly exceptional runner. And and that's sort of his life, right? In terms uh -huh. of these. In terms of how do you take this and apply this? Because there's two things. One is how do you act, and the other one is how do you orient yourself towards other people. And and and, and the sec on the second one, like I think that that's kind of the idea. It's like it's you're on that winding you're on that winding bike path that people can get onto and off of every you know 300 feet. And so all you can see is this little quarter mile stretch, and there's certain people who are running on it, and they're running at different speeds. How do you make judgments about who's the best runner? You can't. You can't. You. I mean, like, you actually can't. And so it's not. It's not like judgment is bad. Judgment is good. Judgment is good. Judgment makes us wise. Only right judgment makes us wise, though. Mm -hmm. And so you have this deep. There's this deep, deep, deep need for epistemological humility in mm -hmm. all of this, because you just don't know. And like that's that's why part of why I think that Job is the first of the wisdom books in the Bible. It's like, if you're going to be wise, you, you have to get this thing down first. Mm -hmm. And so, so then why would that then point you to narrative? Well, because for a couple of reasons, but one of them is that a lot of the narratives that we have, so 
we've been talking, you and I have been talking a lot about novels, but if you think about like the old stories, like fairy tales, and a lot of novels are really retelling of, honestly, of fairy tales, things like fairy tales. Especially things like Till We Have Faces. Yes. Especially things like Till We Have Faces. You're like, what? And I, that's, that's different. Why is it different? It's different because the fairy tale is the thing that gets told. Those are the stories that get told over and over and over and over and over. And so you say, okay, I'm that one person that one on that one part of the run. Well, what if you run for 40 miles? You've got a much better idea. And there's no, you know, there's less on and off, off places. You start to get a better idea of what's going on. Is it perfect? Of course not. Mm-hmm. But you start to get a better idea. Okay, I'm trying to make judgments about how I should live my life, about how I should view people, about how I should view my own actions. I've only got one life. Like, I can't, I can't do the science thing. You can't, you cannot do experimental science with people's lives in any real, <laughs> in any meaningful sense. Like, Amen. <laughs> take this drug does it help you not get sick? Yeah, maybe we can determine something about that. Should you not get married and live with someone? It's like, well, frankly, by the time you've already done that, you don't really get to... It's too late. It's too late. Exactly. And so what tradition is in the sense of, not in this, in the, like, here's tradition. Tradition in the sense of things that are passed down, Mm -hmm. particularly narrative traditions. I think the reason that those are so so darn important is because that's the closest thing that we get to that. It's the thing that you've, you've had because then, I mean, okay, so take the example. Well, and even the importance of, of elders. Yes. Yes. And what do they do? I mean, how do they generally share their wisdom? It's through stories. Yes. You know, we can take their word for it if they give us some axiom, but what are they generally going to do? They're generally going to tell you, about a time that something happened to them mm-hmm. or that they saw something happen to someone else. They're drawing from their experience and they are adding to your experience oh. by virtue of their lived lives. Okay. But I, like, I just finished reading <laughs> the Iliad. It goes back yeah. as far as that. Nestor is this wise old man. Yes. You know, they're constantly talking about how he's basically too old to fight, but he's there at the siege of Troy. Yes. And everybody listens to him because he has that experience. Yes. How does he convey that experience? Generally, with some story from his youth. Mm. Okay, so I, I had a conversation with our, our brother last weekend. And we were talking about predicting the future. Can you predict the future? Mm-hmm. Is it is it worthwhile to try to predict the future? And I brought up this seminar in, in, in college. It was one... I'm, I can't even remember another seminar except the one about bears, which was hilarious. We can talk about that another time. (laughs) But this one was a guy who studied cliff swallows in the great Northern Great Plains, Nebraska, South Dakota, somewhere in there. So previous to the the interstate era, basically cliff swallows in that, in that region could nest on limestone cliffs. There weren't that many. They're not that big. They're, they're colony dwellers though. And so when people started coming in and building highway bridges, you've got these long stretches of perfect cliff swallow territory of nesting territory because you've got this vertical face that's protected from predators with an overhang. I mean, it's just, if you're going to design a place for them to build a colony. Uh And so what happened is, is that in a very, very short period of time, the number of colonies in the average size of the colonies exploded. And there's this whole probabilistic thing about that, that relates to the parasite load in a colony scaling with the size of the colony because you have a certain amount of flow in and out and every swallow has some probability of bringing those parasites in and they're they die out at some rate and so the bigger this and they can spread very easily between the nests so the smaller the pop the smaller the colony the less birds are coming in and so the less opportunities there are for these nest parasites to be introduced and so when he went in with his graduate students and they started studying these they would fumigate one side of the colony and then they would look at the baby bird growth rate because one side, all the nest parasites had been killed, and the other side, they hadn't. And what they found in their initial series, like three or four or five years of work, was that the sides that they fumigated, had the babies were twice as big. I mean, it was astonishing. There's a picture, they're the same age, and in one hand, he's got one a baby from the fumigated nest and one from the non-fumigated nest. It's like twice, it's, it's just, it's monstrously big in comparison. And so what, they, what he concluded from that was, that there's some serious health effects to these large colonies and that it's actually not that beneficial to the population. 
interesting. Good. Mm -hmm. We did our science. You write your PhD thesis. You send it off. You go and you do something else because who cares about close calls, really? You just wanted the degree. No, this guy, God bless him for it, ended up coming back many, many times. And so his research spanned something like 30 or 35 years. I need to go back and look this up. I haven't, you know, I haven't looked at, this is seven years ago when I sat in on this, but it was about, it was around 30, 35 years uh -huh. that he did this. They went back and they repeated the study three decades later. And guess what they found? They found out that there was no difference between the side they fumigated and the side they didn't. Because the population, and there were the same amount of parasites as before, but there was such a strong selective pressure on the population that they developed an extraordinary tolerance for these nest parasites. Hmm. So they didn't get rid of them. They didn't figure out a way to get rid of them. They just learned to tolerate them. Now, there's some really interesting ecology to be taken up from that in terms of like invasive species ecology and all that stuff. What I find way more important is, is that the story at the beginning in the first three or four years is not even the same story as you get when you look at it over 30 years. Mm -hmm. And so this should give it again, right? It's the epistemological humility to know how we should operate in this world. How much of our lives, how many of our decisions are like that? Mm -hmm. Hey, look, I've been, I've been drawing this line for four years. It goes this way. I understand where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> so that you know that's interesting in terms of can we predict the future but mm -hmm. it's also interesting in terms of why do we want to know the past yes because the future is ultimately always truly unknown yes unless yeah. you're a prophet with a revelation from god yes which can happen and even but then it's, it's not very, very rare clear. and it's, it's even not then it's not very clear, clear. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but but just generally speaking you just don't know what the future has yeah and so we we need that sense of the past that i think you know sometimes you hear it lamented like you know nobody knows anything about history anymore I don't know if that's actually true, like, in the sense that, did anyone ever know history? <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. yeah. but I think yeah. it is really important to, for that reason, maintaining the recognition that we've been talking about, that is, it is history. It's not a narrative. Mm -hmm. We have to get our narrative sense and where we are in the story from somewhere else, mm -hmm. aka the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, which gives us the beginning to the end. Mm -hmm. But we still need that knowledge on a, a smaller level of what has happened in the past because that's what we can know in order, in to, order to choose the best means to reach the goal that we know is there. Which is prudence. So we're now up to three of the cardinal virtues. Great. Let's talk again. <laughs> <laughs>